This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. It's just great to be with you this morning. Let's, let's open our Bibles, if you have a Bible, to Matthew chapter 28. There are copies of the, the Bible over in these uh, side cabinets. If you'd like a, a copy, you're welcome to grab one of those and follow along with us. Let's open our time together in prayer. Father, just by the word, Father, coming to you in prayer proclaims the gospel that we would come to a holy God when we are sinners only through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, his atonement for our sins, his resurrection, his ascension, the new life that we have in him. Lord, we pray that as we look together, as we examine the empty tomb this morning, that you would open our eyes, that it would be more than just words on a page, more than just a story that we've heard, but it would be life-changing for us. For some of us in this room, the first time that we've put together our need and, Lord, the way in which you've fulfilled it in Christ, the way in which every single promise that you've made is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. But Lord, we pray that it would be something that we personally respond to this morning. You'd speak to us by your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Leo Tolstoy gives us a good question to ponder this Sunday. This is what he writes. He says, my question, that which at the age of 50 almost brought me to suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man, a question without which an answer to which one cannot live. It was this, what will come of what I am today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed this way. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Is there anything after death? That was a question that was asked to the late Hugh Hefner, longtime owner of Playboy magazine. Hefner said this, I haven't a clue. I'm always struck by people who think they do have a clue. It's perfectly clear to me that religion is a myth. It's sometimes something that that we've invented to explain the inexplicable. My religion and the spiritual side of my life can come from a sense of connection to humankind and nature on this planet and in the universe. I am in overwhelming awe at it all. It's so fantastic, so complex, so beyond comprehension. What does it all mean? if it has any meaning at all. But how can it all exist if it doesn't have some kind of meaning, he writes. I think anyone who suggests that they have the answer is motivated by the need to invent answers because we have no such answers. I wonder which one of those two quotes, those men, resonate with you this morning. Is it Tolstoy's deep longing for truth or Hefner's skepticism of those who claim that they've found it? 
After all, in our day, religion has become a preference, a box to check on a survey, an opinion. Many would think and proclaim that all religions are the same. Do what works best for you, and please leave me alone. And yet, death is always persistently knocking at the door, reminding us that this life on earth ends. One out of every one of us in this room will die. Any sort of blind optimism that denies that or religious belief that sugarcoats that with emotional platitudes will leave us longing and empty. Belief is irresponsible and empty if it's not based on truth. We know this from everyday life. We don't base our daily decisions and operations on our feelings, but truth. When we go to the bank and withdraw money from our account, the teller doesn't say, you know, I'm just not feeling it today. I don't feel like you have money in your account today. You would say, well, what does that have to do with anything? There's either money in my account or there isn't. The last thing we want is for banks to give us money based on how they feel. Why would we not seek truth then when it comes to the most fundamental, important questions in life? Is there any meaning in my life that death does not destroy? Friends, the Bible's answer is yes. And that yes comes not only in the account of God's creating the universe. So from Genesis to Revelation, we see God's hand. But also in the redemption of mankind, as Jesus of Nazareth is raised from the dead. A dead man, resurrected, trumpets death's defeat and eternal life for sinners. An empty tomb and risen Savior are the bedrock hope that death does not actually have the last word. Jesus overcomes and destroys death by dying and rising. And that's what we're going to consider this morning from the gospel account of Matthew in chapter 28. And so if you haven't turned there, look there at your Bibles in chapter 28 of Matthew. And I'll just tell you, this is the main point of what we're going to look at this morning. It is the gospel itself. Jesus Christ died on a cross. He was buried and three days later rose bodily from the grave. And friend, if that is true, not just a preference, not my opinion or my truth versus your truth, but really objectively true, then it changes absolutely everything in your life. There are eternal ramifications that you must deal with and you need to deal with them today. So here's how we're going to approach our time together. I want to work through this gospel account here in Matthew 28. So if you're taking notes, number one, we're going to look at the biblical account of the resurrection. That's number one. Number two, then, we're going to consider some alternatives. So we see what the Bible says. Are there any alternatives of what could have happened? That's number two. And then finally, we'll think about the implications. We'll just answer the question of so what? If this is true, so what does it mean for me today? So whether you're here this morning and you're just visiting, if you're here and you're a skeptic or you're just not sure, you've been a Christian for years, there is no place that I would rather you be, no place that I would rather be than staring into the empty tomb, reflecting and thinking and asking these questions together. And so that's where we'll begin, this biblical account of the resurrection in Matthew. So let's get our bearings by looking at verse 1. After the Sabbath, 
Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, this is the end of Matthew's account of Jesus' life and ministry. That account begins with his genealogy. So if you're not familiar with looking at the the Gospel of Matthew, that's how it begins, tracing Jesus as a descendant of David and of Abraham with the purpose of, of showing him to be the anointed one, the Messiah, who was to save his people, Israel, from their sins. And so Matthew then goes about recording his virgin birth, his baptism by John, his temptations by by Satan, his teaching ministry, how he gathered 12 disciples and traveled to many surrounding towns, healing and doing miraculous signs and wonders and proclaiming himself to be the Son of God, saying that he has come to die for the sins of his people, and that he himself would rise again. And, and that message draws a crowd, but it also ends up getting him killed. The religious leaders hated Jesus and plotted from the beginning to put him to death. And so eventually one of his own disciples betrays him for money. He was then arrested. He was tried by the Sanhedrin and the Roman authorities and sentenced to death by crucifixion. You can find the details about his last hours there in chapter 27 of Matthew's gospel. I would encourage you to do that and reflect on that. But even through Jesus' death here, which looks to us like a failed attempt at a coup, some kind of movement that was just squelched, we actually see the unfolding of God's eternal purpose to save a people for himself. So the Bible teaches that God actually ordained this event for his glory and for the good of his people. But let's go back. Let's pick it up in chapter 27 with his burial. Look at verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure. Until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So, friends, this is the the setting. Jesus is dead. He's been placed in a tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And the religious leaders are aware of the claim that he would rise, obviously, and so they post this guard around the tomb and seal it with a Roman seal to prevent any kind of funny business coming in and kind of pretending that that this had happened actually. So by human standards, this is a fairly secure situation, and, and we know this is not going to be enough. And that brings us to this early Sunday morning that the two Marys mentioned here in chapter 27 and 28 come to the tomb. Now, these women are faithful disciples of Jesus, and they're showing it again here. We know that the disciples as a whole have deserted Jesus in his final hour, but these women here are showing their commitment and love for him, this courageous example of that. 
When the connection, you're, you're having a connection with Jesus at this point is going to get you nothing but trouble. And you've probably heard that in this culture, the testimony of women was not highly valued. So, so having women as the first witnesses of this resurrection actually speaks to its authenticity. It's not something that you would do if you're wanting to trump up this story if it actually didn't happen to fabricate it. It's there because this is how it happened. It carries the ring of truth with it. And let's see what these women saw. Verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. This is not an unusual uh, picture of what happens when angels interact with human beings in the Bible. Often we see this, people, angels having to tell the people to get up, uh, don't, not, don't worship us. There's this fear and, and dread. And these battle-hardened soldiers have never seen anything like this before, and they become like dead men, which we would assume that means lying motionless on the ground and enter in these two women walking up to the tomb, and we would, we would assume that they're disheartened at this point. Uh, their teacher, whom they loved and followed, who'd made all of these wonderful promises to them, that they had seen teach like no one else teach and heal like no one else heal and do things that they had never seen anyone else do, was dead. We learn from Mark's gospel that they're actually carrying spices to, to somehow anoint Jesus' body, not knowing how they would actually get the stone rolled away to do it, but they're, they're going anyway, just wanting to perhaps be near him. And they come and they see this man sitting on the stone that has now been rolled away. And this man is in gleaming white like lightning. And the guards, yeah, they're, they're on the ground looking dead. And then this man speaks to them. Verse 5, but the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And then the angel proclaims the news that must have sounded like a trumpet blast to these women, the news that would change the world forever. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So these unlikely, overwhelmed likely witnesses get to go in and look around and investigate the empty tomb. And Jesus is not there. And now, as we'll see in a moment, uh, it's one thing to proclaim that the tomb is empty. And we ought to do that. That is a true statement. We have good reasons for saying that. But it's another thing to say that Jesus was seen after his death. You could do maybe one without the other. We could say that the tomb is empty, but, but, but where is the body? Or we could say, well, we saw Jesus, but, but the tomb is not empty. But when you put those two things together... The credible sightings and the empty tomb, we have a very powerful witness. Continue there in verse 8. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, 
Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. We know from other gospel accounts that the women did go and tell the disciples. Peter and John raced out to the tomb to verify that story. It's a really funny and interesting account in John 20. And there are multiple other sightings and and meetings between Jesus and his disciples that that then take place. I would encourage you to go and, and read through some of those in the gospels. But there's another kind of meeting that's kind of the opposite of this that, that, that also happens. Look at verse 11. We have a different kind of messenger with a different kind of message, or really the same message, a different response. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests what had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews even to this day. And if you've been reading the Gospels, you know this is par for the course for the religious leaders. They have been overlooking this truth, the truth, conspiring to to save and salvage their own positions of authority from the beginning. And so the soldiers here likely face execution for, for, for letting their their, their, their prize get, get, get away, get taken away. And so really it's a win-win to have this story cooked up. The disciples stole the body in exchange for the religious leaders to go and put in a good word with their superiors. But did you notice that in that account, the soldiers nowhere deny Jesus' body is missing from the tomb? The, the main concern coming up is what are we going to do about this? What alternate explanation can we tell about what's happened so that we don't die? Not even the Jewish leaders at any point can, can produce the body of Jesus, which would have ended the whole thing. But no one, not the soldiers, not the religious leaders, deny that the body is in fact missing. All anyone would have to do is just to walk in and see that the tomb is empty. That was a given, it seems. The only question is why? How? And friend, this is a question that I want to encourage you to urgently, carefully consider this morning. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Paul says that if he didn't, we, Christians, are wasting our time. Absolutely wasting our time. We are, of, the, of most of anyone, more to be pitied. If we have hoped in Jesus in this life only. Because, friends, that would mean that we are still in our sins. But if he did rise from the grave... Well, the situation is totally different. And friend, this is what the Bible proclaims from an eyewitness testimony in all four Gospels, all four biographies of the account of Jesus' life and ministry. You need to grapple with that. You need to consider that. Also consider that after these events, there is this movement, there is this community that springs up virtually overnight And everyone thinks that Jesus has risen from the dead. And they were willing even to give their lives away if they spoke of it. Pascal said, I believe the witnesses that get their throats cut. 
These witnesses were willing to get their throats cut. And so even today, as we gather on the first day of the week to commemorate Jesus' resurrection here as the church, we've come to celebrate and proclaim this same message, that Jesus is risen. Do you believe this? Do you believe the Bible's account that Jesus is rising from the grave here bodily? Let's just consider some some potential alternatives. That's the second thing I want to look at this morning, some alternatives. And I say alternatives because I think there are certain aspects of this account that really are not so much in question. So I'll just mention three. Uh, First is that Jesus really existed and died by crucifixion. Uh, Historically, this isn't really up for debate. Uh, It doesn't prove that he's the son of God or that he was resurrected, but that he was a real person and did, in fact, die on a cross. Uh, Secondly, his followers did believe that he rose from the dead and actually appeared to them. This is not a debated fact. This was and still is, look around, their message. And then third, the lives of Christ's followers were radically changed as a result of what they saw and heard. This new movement was, in fact, launched. So I want you to consider what, what, what is plausible here. How could these things happen apart from the bodily resurrection of Jesus? Well, one theory says that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. And by that, I put the emphasis on Jesus. Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. And uh, as you know, many of us are, are, are here praying for our, our Muslim friends this, this month during Ramadan. This is a common belief that, that, that Muslims would believe that it wasn't actually Jesus, but someone that looked like him. Uh, really, this is a place where the two dominant religions in the world convert or diverge. Uh, Muhammad would, would, have, would have taught this some six centuries after it happened. Friends, we, we would, it would find it hard to believe, I think, that those close at hand, uh, Christian and non-Christian alike, would have reported that this was, in fact, not the real Jesus of Nazareth that had died on the cross. But another version of the, this theory would be that Jesus was actually on the cross, but he didn't actually physically die. That he fainted and then was unconscious, and the soldiers took him down, assuming that he was dead, quickly buried him, and later he regained his consciousness. So just kind of walk through that in your mind, what that would look like. One author puts it this way, this would require Jesus to have gone through, think about what he went through, the the six trials, no sleep, then the brutal scourging, thorns thrust into his head, nails into his hands and his feet, after hours on a cross, having a spear thrust into his side, being wrapped in grave clothes, put in a tomb with a large stone rolled over the entrance, guarded by Roman soldiers, and in that physical condition, regaining consciousness and stealthily nudging the stone out of the way, quietly making his way out of the tomb, past the guards, standing nearby and going about his way. Friends, is that a plausible solution? Another theory is that Jesus' tomb was, in fact, not empty at all, that the disciples went to the wrong one. So there's a, the wrong tomb theory. It argues that their grief, and in their grief and despair, the women go to the wrong tomb, mistaken Jesus to be risen. But friends, I think it would be good for us just to be reminded the last thing that Roman or Jewish authorities want was for Jesus' followers to proclaim this, that he's risen from the dead. So is it really possible they had sent guards to the wrong tomb to guard it? But in reality, no one would have actually believed Jesus' resurrection without the right tomb being empty. All it would have taken is just to identify the correct tomb and produce Jesus' body. 
and there's no Christianity. But that obviously didn't happen. Well, what if the conspiracy of the religious leaders was more than that? What if, what if the disciples did somehow steal the body? Is that a plausible alternative? Well, we have to, again, ask ourselves, would that group of Galilean disciples be able to overcome this skilled group of Roman soldiers and steal Jesus' body right out from under them? And it's not like this bodily resurrection, this individual resurrection is kind of a normal deal that the disciples would have kind of thought as an everyday idea they would proclaim that Jesus rose from the the grave. Uh, No would-be Messiah in the first century, and there were many, had followers that claimed that they rose from the, 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 the grave. They were, if they died, they were dead. And the movement was then over. So the kind of resurrection that Jesus experienced is here is completely outside of anyone's category. And plus, when you take into account the sightings of Jesus, this theory, again, doesn't hold water. If all we have were the empty tomb, then yes, maybe they stole the body. But we have more than that. We have the, the sightings of Jesus. Well, maybe the disciples were delusional. I mean, people do see things all the time. We see Jesus in our Cheerios and in the clouds and all those other things. It wouldn't be much of a jump to say that I actually think Jesus is spiritually guiding us still. He's, he's with us. And that kind of develops into, over time, this idea that he actually did rise physically from the grave. But the problem is, is this, this huge change in worldview of the disciples and of their life basically overnight. And it wasn't just the 12 that claimed to have seen the risen Jesus. Jesus actually drank and talked with people. Now, maybe a few people could be crazy, but Paul tells us, we saw in our call to worship, Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time, 1 Corinthians 15, 6. And Paul is is telling us that as if to say, if this were a hoax, go ask any of those people. Go talk to those people. Verify this claim. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has said this, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. Nobody would have invented it. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and to enter into a fantasy world of our own. Now, don't get me wrong. The the message that we preach is a little bit out there. And we're talking about plausible, implausible. You might say, well, how about a man rising from the dead, pastor? Isn't that implausible? Well, good point. But from the earliest days of the church, the Bible tells us people have worked to cover up and explain away Jesus' resurrection, and yet every proposed explanation has fallen short. And so one remains, and it's that it actually happened, that he actually rose. And friend, if that is true, there are life-changing implications for you and for me that we must grapple with this morning. I'll just mention a few of those as our last point together. These are implications. Really, this is an all-or-nothing equation. All or nothing. If Jesus did not rise from the grave, we are free to discount his teaching completely. It was all proven false. He said that he would rise after three days. He claimed to be God in the flesh. These are radical claims. They can easily be dismissed unless he rose from the grave. We can say liar, lunatic, 
as C.S. Lewis said. But if he rose from the grave, we have to say, Lord. That authenticates his claims. That shows him to have authority over life itself and over death. Look what he proclaims here at the end of this chapter at verse 18. And Jesus came again to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Earlier in his ministry, we read this, Jesus saying, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Have you ever met anyone like that? Who gets to decide when they lay their life down and can decide when they take it up again? Jesus has authority over life and death, and these are not just mere words. He demonstrates it by getting up out of the grave. He has shown that he has authority over death, and we need to know that the Bible teaches us death is a result of sin. And so we'd be right to conclude that Jesus' resurrection shows he also has authority over Satan and sin. The wages of sin are death. We die because we're sinners. It's been this way since Genesis 3. Jesus is the only man in all of history that has died without sinning. His, his, his death was not because of his sin. He was sinless. Well, then why did he die? He died for our sin. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Friend, Jesus' death paid the penalty for our sins. He ransomed, purchased a people by taking their place on the cross and taking their sin away. And by faith, when we put our trust in Jesus, we not only receive forgiveness of sins, but we receive the standing of righteousness credited to our account, the righteousness that Jesus lived out in his own life. By his sin-taking, wrath-absorbing wounds, we are healed. And that means forgiven, made new, and made righteous. Jesus' resurrection is like a victory parade over the grave and death and especially the sting of death, sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, do you know the victory of Christ, of the resurrected Christ? Do you understand that you have sinned and deserve God's judgment? And the only hope that you have is in Jesus, to take that judgment for you, which he did on the cross. And he rose from the grave. He rose from the grave. Therefore, by faith, we receive the victory through Jesus' victory. And friend, that actually includes a promise of our own resurrection as well one day. Our bodies are still going to age and break apart, and unless Jesus returns, we will still die. But just as Jesus rose from the grave, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Jesus has authority over life and death and sin and Satan. And friend, he has authority over you and me. He has absolute authority over your life, over all things. 
And in light of what he's done, he now calls us to come to him as Lord. We often say, I've decided to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Ultimately, he's already the Lord of all things. We simply submit to him. We realize, oh, he's the Lord, not myself. And it's not just enough to believe that Jesus was a real person or that he died on a cross or even that he rose. I would, I would wager that Satan believes those things. If we interviewed Satan this morning, as one author says, and asked him, Satan, do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? I think he'd say yes. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Yes. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross and rose again? I think Satan would say yes. Do you believe Jesus is the only way to be saved? Yes. If I said to him, well, then would you commit to live a moral life and even come to church and maybe be involved in leadership? He could say yes. But the crucial question for Satan would be, will you repent of your sins and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord? And his answer would be absolutely not. Absolutely not. Friend, that's the most important question. That's the most important implication for you this Easter morning. Not just your belief in the resurrection, but your submission then to Jesus as Lord. Being a disciple of Jesus. Paul makes that really clear, and we we heard that some with the baptisms this morning. He puts these, these things together in Romans 10, 9 through 11. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, made right with God, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And confessing with your mouth. It's not just magic words that you would say. It's a heart condition that says, yes, I believe. Jesus died on the cross for my sin, and he rose as my Savior, and now my life belongs to him as my Lord. My life is no longer my own. He has absolute authority in my life. And that has implications for every part of your life. It filters through every decision and commitment that you make. There's no private version of this, of following after Jesus. It's completely giving your life over to him. It's going, it's going to be obvious to those who are around you, to the church, people that God has given you to, to be a part of and to encourage you to help follow Jesus, the family, the bride of Christ, to your own family, to your neighbors, to your coworkers. Is he your Lord? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? There is a living hope on offer for you this morning. A hope of being born again to new life. A hope of being justified, made right with God. A hope of forgiveness of sins and imputed righteousness. The removal of death's sting. The hope of security and joy that no one can ever take away from you. So the answer to Tolstoy's deepest question, is there any meaning in my life? that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy, our answer as Christians is he is risen. He is risen indeed. Friends, I'll close with Paul's words to the the people at Athens as he too is preaching on the the, the resurrection. 
This is what he says in Acts 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's given us assurance that he will judge the world. How do we know? The tomb is empty. Assurance has been given. We will be held accountable. And in his great love, Jesus has come to save us from our sin. To help us to understand this is real. This is based on truth. Because he actually rose from the grave. It's interesting to note how the people responded there in Acts 17, verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. In other words, they're going to put it off to another time. But some joined him and believed. Friend, what about you? How will you respond? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us. We're thankful for this news that we have, for the scriptures that are before us, the way you've reached out in your love to us, opened our eyes. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would continue to do that by grace, that we would continue to be like like the women here in the story, ready to announce this good news, that, that he is risen, And that we would live our life every day with this as the banner that hangs over it all, that he is risen, that you are the Lord of our life. We are gladly wanting to commit ourselves to you, gladly wanting to make you the king of our lives, for you have died in our place and risen from the grave. So Lord, we pray that that would be a a resting truth for some today that have never heard, never responded, never made it personal never reached out in faith to Christ. Lord, would you open their eyes? Would you cause someone to be born again, even now? And Lord, we pray you'd give us all great assurance as we walk through this life and deal with the suffering and the struggles from day to day. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is hope. And we can all just have to look to the empty tomb to see it. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.